Hey everyone, just two quick announcements. Um, I'm host, holding a giveaway for a very cool impact investing prize pack worth $500. It is uh, composed of a $250 gift certificate to Patagonia, which is amazing. They've got amazing clothes and gear um, and is a great example of a responsible company. Uh, it includes a one hour coaching call with me to help look at your portfolio and I can give suggestions and recommendations on how to better align your portfolio with your values and make a more positive impact. And, uh, two great books. Uh, one is a book of moving beyond modern portfolio theory, which we discussed in the last episode with author John Lekomnik and, uh, Ronald Cohen's new book, Sir Ronald Cohen's new book, um, uh, on the impact revolution. And, uh, that uh, we're going to be talking about in an upcoming episode. So I hope you'll enter to win. It's very easy. If you're listening to the podcast already, all you need to do is make sure you subscribe to the newsletter and uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts for the this podcast. You can find out how to do all that. There's a form as well you can fill out. It gives you all the instructions. Shouldn't take you more than five minutes to fill it out. And it is at www.davidoleary.ca slash giveaway. Secondly, I'm also uh, com composing a, an infographic mapping out the impact investment landscape across Canada and who the major players are in various categories. So if you want to give feedback on that or contribute to it, uh, you can visit davidoleary.ca slash infographic. I would love any feedback. Um, and if you can forward it across to uh, organizations or people in the industry that would like to make sure they are included. There is a form on the website they can fill out to make sure that they get included in that. So I hope you'll uh, check it out. I would love your feedback and uh, help getting the word spread so that I can make sure it's as complete as possible. With that, let's uh, get onto the podcast. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Access to safe and affordable housing is absolutely essential to meeting humanity's most basic needs. Housing not only protects us from the elements, but provides security and stability that's so important to our physical, emotional, and mental well-being. Yet even in the world's most developed markets, housing affordability is approaching crisis levels. For nearly 40 years now, with the exception of a few dramatic market corrections, for instance, the early 1980s and in 2008 here in North America, housing prices have done nothing but soar far exceeding the asset class's long-term expected returns. For instance, according to the S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller 20-City Composite Home Price Index, real estate in major cities across the United States have doubled since 1980. Meanwhile, in Canada, home prices have nearly quadrupled over the same time period. The problem is particularly acute across the globe in cities like Toronto, Munich, Hong Kong, Frankfurt, Amsterdam, Vancouver, Paris and Zurich, which all topped the charts of the UBS Global Real Estate Bubble Index, last published in 2020. As the global pandemic has taken hold, housing prices have only continued to surge in many markets across the globe, furthering the already staggering wealth gap we're experiencing between the rich and poor. 
Today's guests, Garth Davis and Andy Broderick, are managing partners at New Market Funds based in Vancouver, British Columbia, where they structure high-impact investments that provide affordable housing in vulnerable communities across Canada. During the episode, Garth, Andy, and I discuss just how bad affordability is getting, some of the additional barriers that vulnerable communities face in accessing affordable housing, the economics of affordable housing, the importance of community-based nonprofit partners in the process, and the various ways New Market Funds is tackling the problem. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end when Andy, Garth, and I discuss the opportunities and challenges they see for the industry over the next decade. And with that, let's get on to the podcast. So welcome, Garth and Andy, to the podcast. I'm uh, real excited to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm excited. I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for uh, a long time now because New Market Funds is, I think, one of the longstanding impact investors in Canada doing great work around affordable housing. I'd love for you to just start and give a, a basic introduction to yourselves and New Market, if you could. Sure. I'll jump in. Garth Davis at New Market Funds. I'm one of the managing partners. Uh, New Market dates back to 2013 and really formed around a mission of channeling more capital towards community need. And the opposite side of that coin was to, to create investment opportunities for investors to line up their balance sheets with their values and saw the symbiosis of those two things. We look to a structure in the UK as insightful in terms of how we set up new markets. It's a entity called Bridges Ventures and was set up by Sir Ronald Cohen coming on almost 20 years ago. And uh, they used a registered charity to own a majority of their for-profit fund manager. And we really liked that structure with the charitable lock. And so we've set up new markets that same way. We have a registered charity that owns 51% of new market funds. And the, the balance is broadly held by the management team. We're a, we're a B corporation and we're just recently added to the Impact Assets, 50 recognized fund managers in 2021. So helpful global recognition on, on that front. We manage four funds on our platform, totaling a little more than 65 million. Our investors are primarily foundations, other institutions, family offices, and we have a handful of, of individuals. We break up our business in two parts. We have a community real estate practice which is so far primarily affordable housing with a few other projects in there and a community lending practice, which lends to nonprofits, charities, co-ops, and social enterprises. And there's some overlap because those two community lending funds also lend to housing projects as, as well as more broadly. And uh, a third part is that we support some sector building activities through our charity. The core part of the team, we've got 15 on the core team. There's myself, Andy Broderick, Derek Ballantyne in Toronto. We have development teams in Toronto and Vancouver. We've got a community lending team uh, and an ops and finance team here in Vancouver. And uh, yeah, that's us in a snapshot. Awesome. And, and Andy, I first came across you at the Van City announced the launch of the, the relauncher, sorry, of and the re renaming of the Van City Community Investment Bank. I guess that was, what was that, back in 2018 or 2019? 2017, 2018, yeah. 
Yeah. And yeah, tell everybody what are, what's your role at uh, New Market Funds? And Yeah, I'm a, a managing partner also at New Market Funds. My relationship with New Market started at the beginning on weekends and, and Sundays with guards and in coffee shops. And I went part-time for a while at Van City and then went back when we met, I was full-time helping. I agreed to take a year to help launch the, the bank in the Toronto market. So yeah, that was a, an exciting moment. But again, I my plan had always been to to land back here at New Market Funds and, and help help move this forward. Awesome. Let's talk a little bit about affordable housing. What what for you guys and for New Market as a whole? Like, talk and you can maybe talk a little bit about the, the genesis of the organization. But what was it specifically that 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 compelled you around a, a affordable housing? Is it the need is obvious, but. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I'd start first by saying we're, as a new, understanding we were a new fund in a world that likes to see, I think people have done uh, things before and, you know, are, are not necessarily embracing of high risk and entrepreneurship. We thought that there was, a, as you point out, a, a really big need for affordable housing, but it was within a, an asset class that was not high risk or real estate. So it was a, a good place for us to build our experience uh, and have our investors build their experience with us without asking those investors to take a step too far in, in a risk category, say around direct business investment or, or other things like that. So makes sense, guys? Yeah. Yeah, it was a uh, low, low perceived risk, high actual need. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. There's something as, as somebody who's come from the investment world, it's been a long time kind of studying financial theory and all that and investment management and how you go about doing that and had lots of you know discussions around the role of of real estate there's something very different about real estate and very i guess like behavioral ways for for people and I'm, I'm talking from the investment side not from the need side right now but there's there is something about real estate itself that at across both obviously the, the need to have a home and for physical security and for for health and all those things that come with that, but also people, it's tangible. People understand it. There's something about, I think, innate in us that we want to have a place that we call home and that we need that, and that even transcends itself right into the investment equation. And it was a, a factor that I probably undervalued as I was younger in my earlier days studying finance and, and realizing like, practically speaking, I think some of the behavioral and some of the social aspects of our interest and desire for for a home lends its way into the actual practical ways in which real estate behaves as an asset class. And I probably like underappreciated those things about it, but like it's intuitive. People can understand it. It increases how long you tend to hold the investment. It's not mark to market. And so you don't see the price fluctuating. It, it, there's a lot of positives that come from real estate investment that quite frankly, aren't shared with making a, a portfolio of stock investments. I'm curious if that was that aspect was coming to play. Like pe everyone can appreciate the need to invest in and to own a home and to, to have a home to live in. Yeah, it's true. And caveat that all of our funds are only open to accredited investors, which puts you in a certain kind of financial threshold that either you yourself or someone owns a home. And in fact, our first fund was 25 million from 33 investors. So you do the math, these are on average fairly large investments. And most of these folks, they may well own other real estate investments or their foundation may own other real estate investments or invest in other real estate funds. 
And so it's something that there is a kind of a, a, a general broader knowledge within that accredited community of real estate investing that's helpful. Sometimes it can be a hindrance, but it's, I'd say, largely helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could we talk a little bit about the challenges that you... So I think most people can probably appreciate that especially in the Toronto and Vancouver markets, but probably just generally real estate prices are getting what feels like very out of hand and that affordability for large segments of the population is getting more and more out of reach. But maybe talk about a little bit more about the ways in which kind of vulnerable communities in particular struggle. And I have to imagine that it's more than just the the price itself. Do, do you? I, I'm curious if you can sort of just elaborate a little bit on what are some of those barriers and the ways in which you address that through the various funds at, at New Market? You want to jump in, Andy, and I'll uh... sure. If that's it's a good it's a good question. It's kind of it's a hard question actually because I mean it, it really gets to the nexus of that connection between capital and community that we're trying to try to create. I think we've looked to our nonprofit partners as the specialists in terms of how to deliver uh, the need you're talking about, the value you're talking about in a way that addresses the, s- the specific uh, challenges or, or gaps for vulnerable populations. So we try and make sure we identify nonprofits that have good community representation, clear understanding of those needs and a clear understanding of how they can achieve their mission. But again, it's hard to do everything. So what we've tried to do is through a partnership model to understanding these nonprofits is critical to our delivery, identify what we hope are the strongest and most able who know how to work with government and know how to work with their communities to, to deliver at all ends of that spectrum of need. For instance, we worked closely with Woodgreen in, in Toronto, which again is a very strong group, long history, good understanding of the groups they, they're working with and what their mission is. And our goal is to do what we can to enable groups like that to get more done and be more effective on what they're getting. Yeah, I can appreciate that. I think the the challenges probably for different communities can be probably quite different and then beyond even just the very basics of one common thread, I'm sure would be the just the affordability of that. But I imagine there's a lot of other barriers to access, whether it's renting and or purchasing that affect different communities in very different ways. And so it, it does make a lot of sense to partner with community organizations that understand the, the local context a lot better. So to, so that looks, in your case, a lot of community foundations, a lot of other uh, yeah, foundations. Are there our, other? Yep. Our investors frequently. So on the investor side, it would be the community foundations that, that frequently not only will invest in the funds, but will will do introductions to, to neighborhood and, and uh, community-based organizations that have a need that they've understood and identified as particularly critical and authentic. It's a nice, nice network of relationships that sort of supports both at the investment side and, and, and then at the project level. Yeah, I'd love to, your question deserves an even stronger answer in some ways, but uh, like I said, it, it's very hard for us to think about a national fund that doesn't really rely on strong partners to make sure we're not trying to make judgments about Halifax that aren't appropriate or judgments about Abbotsford. It's, we really do see that nonprofit delivery. And sure, that community needs to get stronger, smarter, more competent, be a better partner. But in a sense, 
we, the, the part we feel most comfortable with is their mission part. The part as a financial part is sometimes is, is a little bit tougher. That's the part we're really trying to help improve their experience so that they recognize the capital we can access as a tool that they haven't had in their toolbox as, a, as an additional resource to serve that mission, which is so important to, to the communities they're in. Yeah. I'd add a take on the finance end of it, and it's you can't build affordable housing in large Canadian cities without a significant amount of subsidy. Like the, the economic, whether you're trying to support the, the most vulnerable communities at kind of shelter rates, or whether you're just trying to create housing that's affordable for firefighters and teachers, it, it, there needs to be some subsidy at the table. And our experience in the first housing fund so far is those not working with those nonprofit partners on average, they're able to leverage a third of the cost of building these new units through, through subsidy. And that could be, it could be CMHC, it could be provincial, it could be municipal. We've got a, a, a lot of deals here in Vancouver where the city of Vancouver has contributed the land under a 99 year lease for a dollar. That goes a long way to working towards affordable housing that works for any community, let alone the most vulnerable. So I, I, I think Annie's right. The nonprofit piece is absolutely critical in how you connect to communities and show up in a responsible way. But it's also what makes the affordability possible by working through kind of other stakeholders that are willing to commit subsidy for affordable housing. Hmm. Yeah, it, 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 interesting in that it, it raises that government is affordable housing. Is, should show all social housing be federal or should it not? I get, I get trapped sometimes in these levels of government arguments. The, the good news is that has gone into the rearview mirror. People have finally recognized that there is such a need and it's so broad that it's going to take you know all levels of government coordinated with the private sector and the nonprofit sector to, to make significant inroads to address yeah, I can appreciate that. What's happening? Does the, does it, what's going on in kind of with the real estate market right now change anything for how easy or difficult it is for you guys to, to operate? Garth, do you want to take that one? Well, let, we've well, been in the go. market. I'll, I'll start first. So like on the new build side, I think, I think it does. When we started out in 2013, there was no national housing strategy. The province of BC didn't have a comprehensive approach to a housing strategy. The acuteness of the affordability issue has moved from being something that was can maybe relegated to the fringe seven, eight years ago to an absolutely mainstream recognized issue that government is, you know, stepping in front of. So on the new build side, that has been really helpful. We're just at the outset though of meeting what's really needed in terms of core housing need across the country. The, the interesting piece, we started out focused solely on this new development and significant renovation piece. And what we saw, particularly over the last three to four years, and you saw it in many cases through the local partners, whether it's the community foundations or the nonprofits or the co-ops was an increasing trend towards what's being labeled as the financialization of multifamily housing. And 
this is this is something that's not brand new. It's not exclusive to Canada. It's not exclusive to the largest markets in Canada, but it's absolutely something that's happening here. If I dial back to when I stepped into the finance world in the early 1990s in Toronto, among the big banks, real estate was a four-letter word. They had all just taken massive hits. The largest teams at all the big banks were the workout bankers on real estate. And that shifted. And we've been in a period for 30 years, approximately, where if you have been cautious and not over-levered, you could, it would be very hard to have lost money on real estate and particularly multifamily real estate. And like good capitalists, eventually people see that, right? They see these low risk, relatively high returns that folks are earning on apartment building. And whether it's through the real estate investment trusts, whether it's through private equity funds, whether, and those REITs are private and they're public whether it's through pension funds or even offshore investors, what we've seen, particularly in the last 10 years, heightened the most in the last five, is this very systematic acquisition of multifamily residential buildings and a clear strategy or a clear set of strategies to maximize the closing of the gap between where actual rents are and market rents. And the challenge for that is it's driven up the price of apartment buildings because these are smart folks. They figured out lots of ways on how to squeeze all the juice out of the lemon in terms of the returns of these apartment buildings. The flip side is as these units are turning, the public data that, that the REITs are, are, are releasing, they're showing rents going up 20 to 30% on when units turn. And that is creating this erosion of this we have this massive amount of what they refer to in the U.S. as, as NOAA, naturally occurring affordable housing. And what's happening here is that naturally occurring affordable housing is a very target-rich environment for real estate investors who want to systematically benefit from increased rents on those. And so we're seeing more and more of those apartments go the way of financialization and have started to work nationally with a set of partners is including CMHC around creating the tools and creating a fund that we can acquire. We can also be an acquirer, but to convert to nonprofit to preserve affordability. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I'm, it feels to me, and I, I don't have the, the data on this, but I would be shocked if it weren't a big part of the a meaningful part of the wealth inequality and that growing wealth gap that's happening has to be coming from those who have had real estate and those who haven't. And the amount, the run we've had in real estate since the eighties collab has just been, you know, staggering and far outpacing what you'd expect the long-term rates of return from real estate to actually look like. And that's excluded a big swath of the population that doesn't have the opportunity to enjoy that compounding. The also like just the nature of Again, that you tend to buy real estate and hold it for much longer periods of time than people typically hold stock or ETF or mutual fund investments. And then the fact that they're exempt from capital gains tax and the tax code favors investment income as opposed to employment income. And so not giving people the opportunity to invest in an asset class that you know is responsible for a large amount of the wealth creation in this country seems really problematic if we care about 
addressing quality. We, I, where, whereabouts do you guys operate? Is it nationally? Yeah, we operate nationally. We're you know focused with offices in Toronto or Vancouver. And talk a little bit about, I'd, I'd love to just learn a little bit, like how do you decide, you've got four different funds and uh, we can, I, I do want to save some time and talk about you know, each of those funds and their mandate, but how do you decide like a, where you're going to operate, what impact you're going to have, like how much of it is driven by, Hey, like we've decided there's a need here and we're going to try to work out our best way to figure out an offering that tackles this need versus, Hey, there's low hanging fruit here and need. And so since there's an, e- there's an easy way for not, maybe not easy, but there is a, a role for us to play here, we're going to be opportunistic about tackling that problem. And, and then, then how that filters down to which communities and geographies you work in. Yeah, I can start if you want, Garth. You go, I was going to be narrow and preemptive, but I won't. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an interesting, there's sort of two sides. One is the project selection side, which I'll leave for a second and speak to how we pick the fund focuses. And as we noted before, at the beginning in 2013, when we were sitting around a coffee shop thinking about this, we were, we were also confronting how do you build a practice? How do you build a reputation? How do you build uh, comfort in the investment community? So that's a part of the equation in all of this is very much an awareness of that. It, it, my heart may not be fully, you know, as fully in what I'm doing, but I'm trying to find something that my commitment is as close as the market and the sort of the, our access to that market can support. So we're, I think we're very, trying to be very practical and cognizant of that, particularly given that the sector in Canada uh, is just growing. There, there really isn't a well-developed, there's not a great deal of familiarity with trying to align market rate returns with uh, long-term community impact. So that's a big part of it. Almost any of our analysis is how is this going to either build on what we've done? How is this going to leverage what we've done? How is it going to find support in the market? How is it going to help grow the market so that in in 10 years, when there's some other guys sitting in the coffee shop or or women and whomever, they will, they will have a a broader uh, set of outcomes they could target. And I'll, because, you know, heaven's sake, I've been doing a lot of affordable housing my whole life and I love it. There, There are other things I'm interested in too. On the macro level, that's very much a part of it. Uh, on the project side, I'll jump in and then I'll leave it to Garth. I'd say, again, and I'm think, speaking mostly of the housing funds at this point, or even what New Commons does, it tends to be driven by partnership relationships. It tends to be driven by, like anything else, if you find uh, a group or uh, a company, let's put it in those terms, that you're comfortable working with, you, you understand each other's need you understand each other's capabilities you're achieving what you want to achieve you just you try and do it multiple times if you can because that will you'll get more done it'll be more efficient there'll be less hand-wringing so we tend to be driven by trying to identify partners that we think will be those kind of partners and testing it out and if it's the case you'll find us being pragmatic and entrepreneurial about trying to grow those relationships and those investments so that you know, so that we can get the money out, make sure it operates the way we said it's going to operate, get it back to our investors and, and do another thought. Yeah, I, I'd throw in and I had to bite my tongue. There is no low hanging fruit. That, that's just, I spent the, the bulk of my career in private equity and I think I know what low hanging fruit looks like. There's no low hanging fruit here. This is, this is not easy stuff. I think Andy's right. It's about partners. Absolutely. You got to have partners that you can work with. 
And I think we, we try to pick, depending on what the fund is, some real clarity around what the risk is we'll take, what the return is we need to get to offset that risk, and what the impact is that we're trying to generate. And that can be a bit of a guide for us in terms of how we go through. Because capital is finite. There, there, there is only so much. You can't do every deal. But yeah, no low-hanging fruit for sure. I can appreciate that. <laughs> there are things that are maybe possible to get done, but difficult, and things that are maybe far less practical or, or possible. There's a less, less of a clear path to, to how to realize that and make it a reality. Maybe that's a yeah, better but, way to put it. <laughs> and that's the value of, of the repeatability. Once you do one deal with one partner, you know how they work, they know how you work, you build some trust. You're not inventing the wheel every time. And I get amazed actually about the creativity of our partners to get done things. If you ask me, I wouldn't think were possible in terms of the sophistication and you know, just the, just the, just the complex nature of the deals and they pull together on, on lots of levels, not just with us, but with you know with all the other partners. The, Win the Winnipeg Group, I think of frequently in terms of how much they've been able to do in a short time. Anyway. Yeah, that's the, mo that's the model for a university-tied development corporation, the University of Winnipeg Community Renewal Corporation, that one of the most entrepreneurial nonprofit development companies that we've ever dealt with. They're just, the things they get done are pretty amazing. And it, in, what, in what regard? Give me, give me an example of how they, how they help. On, on, we've connected with them in the last couple of years and with a couple of boxes of sandwiches and some shoelaces, they've pulled together two 30 plus million dollar projects, 220 units, complete multi-stakeholder financing. This is the downtown, thing. you know, they're right downtown, beautiful locations, beautiful buildings. The, the structure that they pulled together is, it looks like lasagna, right? Between different municipal tax credits, provincial ones, CMHC, us, local philanthropic funders, like they're just, they're so creative. Yeah. And back to the community piece, like just so plugged in with their community groups. Every time you go a layer deeper with them, you understand how, how plugged in they are with the indigenous community there, with the immigrant community, with the arts community, with the youth community there. And it's reflected in the fact that they have, they have long-term leases with a lot of these groups for units in their buildings. It's really cool. So it's a good example of your initial question is how, how do we identify these vulnerable populations that feel confident that we're able to, to translate what we're doing in a way that reaches them. And it, it is through these kinds of relationships, you know, identifying these kind of groups. Yeah. This kind of underscores for me a, a point I frequently make is I think this idea that impact investing is somehow replacing the need for Charities and nonprofits and philanthropy as a whole is really misguided and, har and harmful. And the idea is that we, for me anyway, is that it's let's solve all the problems we can that, that where the solution to that problem can be profited from with investment capital. And then let's save our precious charitable and philanthropic dollars for those other problems and those other challenges that just require funding to be able to do that because there's no obvious profit potential from it. And so having these nonprofits, especially that are inculcated in communities and often led by members in various communities and have this rich knowledge, and that's oftentimes funded through charitable dollars. And we wouldn't be, you know, is a good example of you're, you'd be far less effective if you didn't have those partners. It's such a great example of that. Yeah.
No, and it, it's, it, just to build on it for a second, it's interesting how when you see them develop entrepreneurial and market discipline and execution as part of their toolkit for delivering that mission on those philanthropic dollars. If government can learn how to stand back and participate as a partner rather than try and, and lead the charitable sector or these groups, they're going to get way more value. It's just quite amazing when you bring some of the execution and discipline of kind of market investment at one side with the charitable goals of these organizations and, and they learn how to do it effectively. And they, they, Mike goes on, they recognize it's not going to solve all their problems, but it's going to be one more really important tool they can access. And then they actually bring some of the strength of the market, which is we expect, we expect this of ourselves. We expect when we make up this commitment, we're going to deliver on this commitment. In other words, it's a different set of, not, not entirely different, but it's a broader set of, of commitments and obligations to manage. Yeah, that's, that's really great. It's really well said. I'd love to digress for a moment and just talk a little bit about your backgrounds. Can you talk a little bit about, Garth, I know you started in, in uh, traditional fi you know, finance and the traditional kind of banking sector. Just talk a little bit about, yeah, your journey and how you ended up where you are. What were the kind of decisions? What were the things that interested you that got you to where you are now? Sure. I was young and bright-eyed and curious, and I'll just say I got seduced by private equity. The fact that you could work in uh, a bunch of different industries with companies at different stages, and and I loved that challenge of there's there's just there's a new series, a new set of files on your desk every day, and all of them have different kind of challenges. They might have sales challenges, they might have union challenges, they might have expansion challenges. They might have leverage challenges. And I just, I love that. And I got to work with some just phenomenal people in private equity and having spent a, more than a decade in that sector, not, I would not say that about everyone in that sector. So I, I was really lucky. I hit a point and I didn't, I don't think I really saw it coming. I'd seen private equity as an end in and of itself and lost a very close friend of mine just before I turned 40 in a car accident. And Realized I'd been pretty naive about life and how finite it is. And uh, that, that led me down a, a series of questions and ultimately to do a double shift and to, to move back from Toronto to Vancouver after being gone for 20 years and to cross the street from conventional private equity into impact investing. And, and I did, the first step was, was advanced city and that that's the point of connection with Andy. We did not know each other. We showed up at Van City and on a sunny September day in, in 2010. And I, there was this guy wearing shorts and a pink shirt and his luggage had been lost. And that was Andy Broderick. And we met and uh, realized that I think over time we had the you know, same penchant for, for wanting, and Andy had been doing good for a long time, but that I wanted to do good, to have some fun along the way in, in doing it. And, and to do some new things. And I think in many ways, that was the genesis of new market funds was to figure out, figure out a place where we could find, have purpose in our work, but get things done. And it could have been advanced city. It might've been the timing wasn't exactly right. I think for maybe my own impatience, I lost another friend in, in a very close friend in 2012. And NCD's done a lot of good things. They've supported a lot of our work at New Markets, but we felt like we needed to find this place that was clearly not in the granting space and clearly not in the, call it, regulated bank space. 
so that we could be more creative in the solutions that we're providing to community. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's genesis of my story. You, you have a coherent narrative. That's very nice, Garth. <laughs> <laughs> Better than me. Is, uh, I like that one. <laughs> it's just a hope to not get lost again. We'll see what we can do about getting you lost. Uh, I, I come from a much more muddled past. But, uh, but uh, to Garth's point, one of our strengths is that we can operate effectively in the financial sector, in the community, you know, in government. And I, I, my starting place was community, really. I, I found my way into this work in a small town in Vermont. I'm, I'm at Inport. I moved up in 2010. And I was probably 1990, and I was the founding executive director of the Rockingham Area Community Lanterns, which was a small nonprofit housing development company in a small section of Vermont. Anyway, it was a very, it was a wonderful experience. I spent six years there starting this company and we had a, a good deal of success, developed I don't know, about 300 units of housing, which was a lot for that neighborhood. And then I, I moved up to the big city, Burlington, Vermont. I'm originally from Washington, D.C. I'm not, but we had, we had moved to Vermont for probably lifestyle reasons after a stint in New York where I was a teacher and my wife was a, a public defender. But so anyway, we're, we're bleeding hard liberals from you know, way back, moving to the land of Bernie Sanders, although he hadn't started that. Up in, up in, up in Burlington is where I got introduced to, all of a sudden the lights started going off. Obviously I'd done a lot of financial structuring up for the small deals we had done at Rocky Amp, but I got uh, to Burlington and I was asked to work with a, a larger statewide nonprofit housing development group called Housing Vermont, which they raised investment funds, essentially. In the States, they have a, something called the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program since the late 80s, and it brings private investment into nonprofit and community-based housing, essentially. It, it, it's been funding most of the rental housing production in the States for a while. And it's, it turned, it, it eventually, it became a very effective program. When I first saw it, I thought it was a you know, complete giveaway to the private sector. Then as I spent time in Burlington, anyway, I, I found my way into doing more and more tax credit work because there was lots of opportunity to improve its efficiency and, and to raise more capital per dollar of benefit than the so private investors were getting. So anyway, I ended up managing a bunch of money for banks and institutions that were investing in housing and working with local nonprofits to get that money out to develop housing and, and eventually came to, to Vancouver. In other words, I did that for to 2010, I uh, went to New York for a little while, worked with a, a fund that was helping larger nonprofits buy their own uh, office space, and then came to Vancouver, invited to uh, serve as a VP of community investment and met Garth. And, you know, it's, so it's been, uh, been new market funds has been certainly my uh, main focus in terms of the focus of my heart since then, although I began to quite think Van City is a very unique organization. It's done an enormous amount of good. It's continuing to do an enormous amount of good. It will deliver over the long haul. I, I think it, in terms of creating an enabling environment for this kind of uh, work to grow, it's been critical. Yeah, Van City strikes me as an organization that just has the the type of culture and values just at its core that it's not going to be perfect and it doesn't always have every answer, but you're just going to have a lot higher batting average with it, the organization doing the right thing, making positive impact because it's so integral from its founding and from its roots. And that's just like really hard to what like this trend we're seeing in terms of corporate CSR and businesses all kind of talking about the need to do good. If it's not, if it's not infused into your DNA, it's very easy for that to come off as lip service and greenwashing rather than real meaningful 
impact. And so it just when you deal with organizations that have it built in at its roots, it's, it gives you a lot of reassurance. And yeah, so the no. new market starting for that reason, it's powerful. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was a pleasure uh, to be there and be part of it. Where the rub is, of course, as a regulated financial institution, you, you run into the, the regulatory limits of that. And as a responsible institution, they have to make sure they honor that and manage that. And I think they generally do a, an amazing job, actually. Uh, but it's it's where the rub is, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Those are That's really interesting. I really appreciate you guys sharing your backgrounds. So let's talk. You've got four four funds. Is that right? That's right. So the affordable rental housing fund, new commons development, the community forward fund, and the Canadian cooperative investment fund. Is that right? Correct. Can you maybe give us an overview of, of, of each of those and what they're set up to do? And we may want to mention that fifth fund too, Garth. And the fifth fund. Yes. <laughs> Although this is not a, this is not a solicitation. Sure. The yeah, housing fund that we're working on. Why don't, yeah, why don't we do them in that order? Why don't I do the housing fund, Andy, and you can jump in on new commons and then sure. I can talk about the two. So the affordable rental housing fund, that's the first fund that we did really meant to be a tool. And, and this is, goes back to Andy's coffee shop discussion. So this was, I think, in the fall of 2012 at a coffee shop on Water Street. And just so you know, Andy, Andy, Andy drinks black coffee and I drink tea. So we don't necessarily agree on that. But there's lots of other stuff we do. And uh, Andy had been working with the Community Land Trust with Tom Armstrong, we call it Housing Federation. And uh, it, there was a city of Vancouver request for expressions of interest around what was at the time originally six sites, but not being four sites for where the city would contribute the land at nominal cost, provided a certain level of affordability was, was going to be delivered. And and he was modeling it and he was like, I think, I think we could put a piece, I think we could, it would work. We could deliver the affordability if we could get somewhere between 10 and $15 million of capital that was at take or give 7%. And so we, that was, that was the genesis of it was there was, we were seeing need more broadly, but there was a very specific, very tangible need for equity for nonprofits and co-ops, which the structures are really not set up for them to raise equity. So we set up the fund to be flexible in how it creates that tool. But the focus was around how can we de-risk these investments sufficiently that we can look our investors in the eye and say, we're delivering you a market rate risk-adjusted return. And there's a bunch of pieces in how that works. Probably the most important one in real estate investing is we were able to set it up so that the fund investors can commit capital much earlier, but they actually don't take any risk until the project is fully stabilized. So their capital doesn't get exposed to development risk, construction risk, rent up risk. And by, by de-risking that way, we get to a net 6% return, paying 4% along the way which I've had conversations with pension funds and insurance companies. And if they are candid, if they will listen and understand how we've unpacked the risk, they will say, we can't get into new built apartment buildings in Vancouver and Toronto with a six return. It's just not math mathematically possible. In terms of delivering market rate risk adjusted returns, this absolutely ticked the box. It was this tool for nonprofits and co-ops to use to really cover the equity that they need for these big projects 
We've used it in other ways since then to allow nonprofits and co-ops to take equity out and then get going on their next deal. We've made, made investments and commitments in Victoria, Vancouver, Winnipeg, and Toronto, nearing 700 units. Nova Scotia. Halifax. We made a commitment. You're right. You're right. Just this month, we made our first commitment in Halifax. And we think we'll do a thousand units out of that fund. Yeah. Yeah. So these are, this funding is going to building a housing, housing that's going to be rented out at affordable prices. Is that? That's right. So the, the fund has a target that on each project it does, the, the affordability will be such that the rents are less than 30% of area median income on average by household size with a target that across the whole portfolio, we're better than 80% of area median income. Hmm. Yeah. And right so now, some, the, some the, lower, some higher, yeah. but working currently we're at so far at about 65% affordable at the, on average is 65th percentile of median income. Hmm. So which I, we should be able to give it, we should have examples off the tip of our tongue, but we don't in terms of what that means in terms of monthly rent. But it's good. It's good target. We built it in from the very start. It's in the partnership agreement, both at the lower level, uh, lower tier and, and our upper tier investment partnership agreement that those outcomes around, around affordability are, are absolutely as critical as our, our target to get that 6% return. So yeah, and they're, and they're both targeted. That uh, was, that's what it is. We're not, we're going to do everything we can. And we assume that future investments going to depend on our success for these investors. And that led us to, if, if, to move on, that led us to recognize that there really wasn't a ton of development expertise in the nonprofit sector, which is all my uh, consulting friends out there are cringy. There was a lot of good consultants, but they, they approached the work as consultants. And again, a little bit to that government having too strong a hand in the process, the pace at which these deals would move was driven, you know, by the slowest government participant involved, which Anyway, it's too important, not to pick a government, but it's too important for that. And really what needed to happen is you needed to have the nonprofits that to get, get access to some at-risk, you know, equity capital for startup, you know, for, for getting a deal going, for stepping into the market and buying a piece of land, for pulling together uh, a deal. And that's why we set up New Commons Develop. And again, we don't pretend it's going to change the tide across Canada, but we just saw there was a gap and this was interesting. It could also help generate some deals for us. And it is working in partnership with other nonprofits. Again, the same sort of model with, with local nonprofits that sort of understand the need, but don't have the capacity or the experience to develop housing, to develop housing for them. And the fee for service based. In other words, we, we take risk around our pre-development money that we bring in. Uh, and we take a, a development fee, probably closer to a, a, a private developer's fee, although not, not anywhere near what's taken in the Stratomark condo markets, but, and, and that is how it's become self-sustaining. And we've been around for three years, a little over three years now. We raised four and a half million, four and a half million dollars. See, it's, it's hybrid again. We did a half a million in grants and four million from LPs. Yeah. So we brought in some true equity as grants for the, and it is a nonprofit structure, which is interesting. And then the LP invests in projects sponsored by new commons. And that, that's gone well, uh, actually. We, we've got a really strong pipeline. We've got a, you know, a deal that first deals under construction is just finished in Toronto. We've got two more entering construction this month, one here in, in Surrey and another in Toronto, a big tower project. So it's been good. It's, it's hard work, but it's gone well. We are contemplating another small 
raise uh, on that to support the pipeline, which is 27, 28 different projects. And what's the constraining factor on being able to raise? Is it finding the investors or is it finding the partners and projects? And that, Yeah, that problem so far, it, it actually is the, the constraint, I would say, is just the development is very, it's very personnel intensive. In other words, we haven't had much run, trouble raising money. We've been able, when we first went out, we raised it quite easily. We haven't gone out again. We're thinking we'll go out and raise a couple of million. We're not going to raise a lot to support the, the breath in the pipeline. Because we see it, it, things took longer than we thought. In other words, it, it didn't take three years to get through everything. It took four. And so we've got a very sort of robust flow of, 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 of fees coming in, but it's just starting now. And so we're really looking to make sure we don't get cash constrained in terms of supporting those other deals that are on the pipeline moving forward. Got it. Yeah. yeah. So the, and the community forward fund? Yeah, and so just a, a line that we draw internally, New Commons and the housing fund, part of the housing practice. And we, Garth will argue till he's blue in the face that the returns on both those funds are market rate risk adjusted returns. If I look at the community lending practice, it's, a, it's different in its genesis, it's different in its return targets, and it's different in its scope. So in terms of the genesis, community forward funds started way back in 2010. Uh, it was a vision of a woman named Nora Sobolov. Our now third managing partner, Derek Valentine, started managing, I think, like 2012. Funny, Derek was raising money for Community Forward Fund. This would have been 2014, 2015. We were raising the first housing fund. Andy, how many times did we either walk out of an investment committee meeting at a foundation or we're sitting in the lobby and we saw Derek either coming out or he saw us coming out? That the partnership formed in earnest over beers, commiserating dealing with dealing with the investment committees writ large, none specifically, and how tough fundraising is. And it's it has been great. Derek's been just he brings in energy like very few people I have met in my life and a veracity to the work focus. You know, he's in Toronto, really legitimized our Toronto presence that Andy and I as two guys on the West Coast weren't getting. He was managing the committee forward fund. And uh, as we formalized, we, as Andy said, launched new commons. Derek was an integral part of that. We, we thought long and hard about whether we should bring committee forward fund on the platform, slightly different in the sense that it was, it is managed on a very disciplined basis. It has had less than 1% losses over a 10 year period. But because of its size, it's unable to really tick that box that it's fully in the risk adjusted market rate return. So it's targeting a three and a half percent return to its investors right now. Very low risk. It provides capital to nonprofits and, and charities, and about a third of those are in housing. So they overlap with the housing practice. It's truly pan-Canadian, making loans in just about all the provinces and territories. It is sector agnostic, just looking to support strong nonprofits in growing their impact. And the catalyst for bringing Community Forward Fund on the platform in, in late 2017, we jointly bid between New Markets and Community Forward Fund to be the fund manager for the Canadian Cooperative Investment Fund. We were already touching co-ops on the housing side. At that time, Community Forward Fund was lending to co-ops. And uh, so we put our name as part of the RFP to become the fund manager for CCIF, and we were successful. And at that point, really made sense to bring these two loan funds on the platform. CFF and CCIF are very symbiotic in that sense that they're pan-Canadian, they're sector agnostic. They're really just focused on 
on supporting community organizations in the case of CCIF co-ops, in the case of CFF charities and nonprofits and extending their work. I don't know, Mandy, if you'd add anything on the community loan. No, I think I've always, uh, since I came to Canada, I saw the CFF as a really important uh, tool in, in the Canadian social finance toolbox. In the, in the States, there are lots of community loan funds. Almost every state has one. And it's and I, I, it becomes actually, it becomes the, usually becomes the first place that you see a de- democratization of investment too into social finance, where we're not quite there yet in terms of the regulatory environment, but we're looking for ways to broaden the people who can invest in it. So if they want to put one or $2,000 in it and know that they're part of the great work it does, they can really grow in terms of, of size. So we're, we're, we're hoping that becomes a sort of one of the entry points for a broader group of investors. Can you just, so the, just to be clear that you were referencing the, the fourth offering, which is the Canadian Cooperative Investment CCIF. And so that instead of, whereas the Community Forward Fund is making loans to nonprofits, the Canadian Cooperative Investment Fund, are, is it loans to cooperatives or are they, is any of it equity? Yeah, it's both. It can make loans and make equity investments in co-ops. Okay. Yeah. And, and it really was mandated around the, uh, the capital that came in behind it led by cooperators, Desjardins, and and a handful of the larger credit unions. And with a focus on providing the kind of core pieces around growth for growth capital for existing co-ops, but it can also do really early stage startup capital for co-ops and has done that. And it can also help finance conversions of other forms of organizations into cooperatives. What talk about why is that why is that needed? Why do co-ops have more challenge accessing financing than corporations? Yeah, I think probably most fun, and I'll also say that the credit unions broadly and definitely specifically, there are their pockets of the credit unions that are doing a great job of taking care of the co-op sector. So sure. it's not like there's no, I don't want to portray that there's no sources of capital for them out there. Right. And at CCIF, we really try and be additive to the work that the credit unions are already doing, supporting the co-op sector. But co- common things that, that we hear are really around just a lack of understanding of the structure. It's a structure that not all banks are, not all banks are familiar with. Obviously the credit unions have the advantage that they're cooperatives in and among themselves, financial cooperatives, and so more familiar with the structure. And I think the ones where they've dedicated some resources, like I think of Vincity is a, a good example. I think of, of Kindred, Cinnaboyne and Winnipeg, where they've dedicated resources to really reach out into the community development sector, understand co-ops, see the need that they're filling. Those ones are the ones that have been the most prolific in their support of the co-op sector. Yeah. So the, the, this fund was, I think, really just an effort to expand that, to have the cooperative center come together and make available the resources that would help that grow in areas where maybe there weren't strong credit unions or there weren't the same resources. Anyway, it's been quite interesting. Interesting. Have you guys heard of Zebras Unite? Do you know that organization? Yeah. Yeah. I, I am familiar with Zebras Unite. Yep. Not, yeah. Not, not a unicorn, but a zebra, something that's actually real. Zebras have stripes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love it. There's also, I think, just something about the, I was listening to actually a big discussion about, not a big discussion, but somebody talking about all the ways in which zebras is a really great metaphor for uh, the kind of cooperative uh, movement and what they're, what they're doing there and being the anti-unicorn. But uh, yeah, it just seems to me we're tackling a sim- similar problem around how do we get the pipeline of financing to be more accessible to cooperative structures, which you know, I think inherently tend to operate more sustainably. It's not a panacea and it doesn't make your business perfect, but yeah. it does a lot to align the, the values of the various stakeholders. I think especially if you're talking about multi-stakeholder cooperatives and just the it's interesting to explore those models, but really how do we get more financing in, in to these types of structures? And it's amazing to me how I'm guilty of it too, by the way, I have a very poor, I have a better understanding now than I did three, four or five years ago. But as somebody who you know spent his time understanding a lot about investments and obviously investments into corporations to have almost zero knowledge of what a cooperative looks like and it is pretty shocking yeah yeah it's not surprising though and it's interesting cuz the the sector needs stronger development expertise in other words the groups despite a lot of good efforts the groups out there engaging with some startups or or mature small businesses that that what would be appropriate for conversion where there's a retiring owner and, and 30 employees and it's a great going little concern but it's there's the, how it moves forward and how it stays to save itself isn't clear there's really are i think quite strong opportunities that we just have to get develop a more sophisticated network of developers to work with some of these groups and i think you'll see it uh, pick up and there's a changing of the guard going on i think between the sort of generations you know older people like me are beginning to be replaced by young entrepreneurial less less dyed in the wool progressives more how do we make this business work so it serves you know people well anyway it's a really good sign and it, i think it's just beginning in the co-op sector yeah, interesting. Right. In the interest of time, I'm going to wind well, out with a two-part question that I think is maybe potentially are, are related. One, I'm interested in what, for new market funds going forward, what you're excited about in the kind of near and, and long term. And then, and B, what do you think are the biggest, the most important things that could happen, whether it's kind of government involvement, government regulation or policy or mechanisms in the market to flow more capital, but that would promote and help advance the affordability of housing in Canada? I know that's a big question, so take it however you, you want to address it. <laughs> you go ahead, Andy, and then I'll... Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I missed the first part. What's uh, so next part on the horizon? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think what we, we, we do want to talk about the fact that we're in the midst of a new, a new fund. Right. It's building off uh, Fund One, which we started... Describing the fund that supports nonprofits and co-ops and, and acquiring stabilized new construction. This fund will build from that. It will, it'll, it's a target of a $50 million raise, and it will also step into that financialization equation. It is going to uh, be able to be used for nonprofits to acquire existing privately held housing that that is part of that, as Burke described it, that an affordable housing that is recognized. So it really is to help expand nonprofit ownership and 
really came from us recognizing that the amount of energy and money we are putting into new construction, which is critical and important, that for every new unit we're building, we're probably using five or six or seven to, to this, this financialization process. So we should be active in both fronts and working to preserve existing affordable housing as well as expand new affordable housing. So we're quite excited about that. And we've had, we've been out since, I don't know, second week of January, and we've had a lot of good responses from our current investors. And we're just stepping out into people we have not had investors and, and taking that. Yeah, why don't I leave the second part of the question to you, Garth? Yeah, and I think you'll debate me on it, but that's okay. That's Let's why make it more here. interesting. Yes. So I on it, most fundamentally, it, it it's about track record, right? It's about proving, it's about proving the track record. And I, I said, there's no low hanging fruit. This stuff takes time. You have to put together these, you know, these complex deals. I think part of the benefit of how long they take is there's a lot of de-risking that goes on in those. Are you just glumping um, your first deal, by the way? No, no, we closed one a long time. No, I'm talking forgot. about the, the one you we yeah. started talking about. We're, we, we are actually, we will hopefully call capital today, knock on wood for that $11 million portfolio that Andy and I. 2012 discussion. The, yeah. Yeah. Nine years, wow. nine years. These, these things take time. And so can, can government be more helpful? Probably. But I think the, the most important part is improving the track record. I think they're already really helpful. Like we get, as I said, in every deal we're in, either one, two, or three levels of government are involved in these deals already. Are there, did CMHC make some tweaks to its affordable flex program for nonprofits to increase their ability to make acquisitions? Yes. So like government is doing stuff. We, we've got to, I think, come together as a sector and prove what we can do. There are tools out there. Could they be better? Yes. Could there be more? Yes. But we got to demonstrate. And I think that's probably the most critical factor in moving this along and trying to scale all this is actually proving it, actually doing it there. Unless you're, unless you're Warren Buffett or Bono or somebody, people don't show up with billion dollar private equity funds. They raise, they have, they have, they have three investments that they call a fund that they bootstrap together for $20 million and then they do a 50 and then they do a hundred and then they do a 250. It's, you have to prove your track record with these investors. And so you have to do that. There's no question. And now Andy will debate. Yeah, now I get to argue. No, I, I actually agree, which is probably why we work together. In other words, we need to start with that. In other words, the, the sector has to be credible. We have to show that we have the responsibility and the discipline and the, and the, and the clarity to, to execute and to do what we say we're going to do, which I, I do believe there are really some strong and increasingly strong examples. On the other hand, all right, there governments across, you know, the, the G7, except for in Canada, have played important roles in, in helping expand this market. Let's look at it as a new market. In other words, it's something that hasn't existed where private capital is being managed in a way to try and make long-term, you know, community impact or environmental impact. There's a lot of benefits for government around that. The same way there's benefits for government around venture capital funds work. In other words, seeing new industries start in your communities and, and create, create wealth. So we really would like to see government understand it that way and understand how they help much like they did in some of those other sectors, how they help de-risk sort of the early actors 
not for long, not for much, not, we're not, we don't want, we don't want a full guarantees or anything, but we, we think it would make sense to, for government and for, for the growth in the sector to have that happen. Now, is it critical? No. Can we do a fund and hit returns and, and deliver it without that? Yes, we can. But anything else that was happening in venture funds too. There just weren't enough of them. And it was a sector that was not as robust as it is now, having had some early de-risking investment by, by the Canadian government. Do you, is there an obvious opportunity for, like, how much does that happen right now in terms of government, for instance, providing some first loss capital or any type of blended finance? Does, is it happening at all? At the- it's happening despite the, I mean, it's happening at the project level. So in other words, at the investment level where, you know, we Garth talked yeah. about how much subsidy was in some of these things. Right. And that certainly, you know, helps reduce the risk for the investment that we participate in. But it's not, re- it's not happening at an intermediary level. It's not happening at a fund to fund or a fund level. And we, there's been some thought and, you know, there has, there was an announcement a couple of years ago about a, a social finance fund that just hasn't materialized. We think that could be a good idea. We don't want, what we don't want it to be is a moral hazard Garth will talk about in terms of a, a grant program or something that, you know, is confuses the market about how this can be effective. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. We're worried to become an overhang that, that. Investors who've built the sector are waiting around to see what's happening with this. Is your fund going to benefit from the social finance fund or not? Switching from being a catalyst to, to an overhang. To end this on a positive note, what are you guys most excited about that you see on the horizon, either for the industry as a whole or for the affordable housing in particular? Yeah, I'll say uh, two things. One, on affordable housing in particular, and then in general. The national housing strategy is is Great. It's not perfect, you know, it, it, but after 20 years, it's really good to see the federal government trying to find uh, a significant role, not the sole role, but a significant role in supporting uh, the development of affordable housing and addressing you know, that, that housing need. And, and do I have lots of opinions about how it can be improved? Yes. And I will be spouting them out, but not today. The second thing I'd say is they did announce that there is a focus on social finance uh, or community investment. Just that there is, I think, really good progress and really represents a, an evolution that has happened in the last you know 10 years anyway. And are there missteps that we find it frustrating? Yes, but we're, we're in the trench. I think that it's being talked about and discussed and understood more and more is good. And we've got to make sure it doesn't become an impediment. And I don't think it has at this point. And I, I, I think it will, in the end, help the sector to grow. But I'll leave Garth for the last word. Yeah. Our first raise was no other thing than brutal. We did over 300 unique investor pitches. And so that includes, I can think of one bank in that, that I've counted once that we pitched nine different parts of that bank, but I'm only counting them once. And we got 33 investors and we got $25 million. And I'm hopeful that we don't have to go through that same process to raise the 50 the second time around. What makes me more optimistic as opposed to just hopeful is what has been happening recently on the, the social finance landscape. And it's anecdotal, but, and I know you had Jeff on your show, on your podcast, uh, Jeff Sear from Raven a while ago. They came to our office in December, 2018 to talk through a $5 million pilot fund. I was with them at SOCAP in October, 2019, and they were struggling to get to an $8 million closing. They closed in January, $25 million. 
just amazing. fantastic. I'm so happy for those guys. And I, I hope, and it makes me a little bit more optimistic about the sector, right? And we also have, we have some new folks showing up, some new folks with balance sheets showing up. There's some significant universities that the endowments have now made commitments to put two, five, 10% of their asset bases into impact investments over the next five years. And that's great. Now, I'm not saying that there weren't any at the table before, but what this is maybe where we were with foundations five, six years ago, where you have mm -hmm. the leaders starting to make that commitment. Yeah, we'll put 10% of our assets in impact. And there are obviously the real leaders who've said we'll do a hundred, but yeah. So I take some optimism that things are moving along. The sector has kind of long been riddled with a, a plethora of announcements and not actually that many things getting done. I feel like more things are getting done, which is great. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. I love it. Listen, thank you. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say no, a, 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 a little bit of a side. In 2008, as I was leaving housing, I moved into financing some renewable energy projects on nonprofit roofs. Quick story. And it, it was hard work. No one was doing it. It was hard to find investors. My daughter last year got a job in New York working for a group that's carrying, finding deals for BlackRock and, and big institutional investors around renewable energy. And it's really, it's just seen, it's moved down to the sort of down the market, it's been accepted and there's just enormous amounts of capital moving into it. And we got to realize that's what happens. And in the States that happen in affordable housing and how it can happen here at Canada also. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Cool. Listen, thank you. I appreciate you both uh, taking the time to come on and talk about this. Good luck with the the latest fund. And I hope you're up for the, <laughs> hopefully it's a smoother and faster uh, process for you, but Thanks for, for, for your time and effort. And this is really an interesting uh, discussion. We'll have to have you again down the road to come back and, and we'll do another update someday. Uh, we appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, love it. Thank you very much, David. All right, guys. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's the, the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.